forever. Dog. Hey folks, it's me, Ben Blacker, the creator and host of the Writers Panel. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sticking with us. Uh, we've got a great bunch of interviews coming up in the next coming months. I think you're really going to enjoy them. Um, smart people, cool shows, cool people, smart shows. This hasn't happened in a long time, but I had this experience recently where I was falling asleep or trying to, and I had sort of been ideating during the day. Uh, I'm working on this new thing, and I'm just trying to put together thoughts about it. I had no idea what this thing was, and so I just sort of put together what I thought was a beginning of ideas to this thing. And then that night, as I'm falling asleep, I was hit by where this is going. And it's rare that I get into a project without knowing where it's going. I usually know I have some some shape of the thing in mind. That has not been the case of this. It's not been the case of a few things recently. Um, and it hit me where this could go, the logical place where this story could lead based on the characters and what they want and how they behave and how they interact with each other. And I couldn't get to sleep. I was so excited. Uh, I got out of bed and I, I immediately ran to my office and I wrote this stuff down and, and um, I went back to bed and then more ideas came. And I got up again, and at that point, I thought, I will spare my wife and go and sleep in the guest room uh, in my office. And because uh, I seem to not be able to stop this train of ideas. And it was so exciting, and it was so invigorating. And I immediately call, uh, texted, this was at midnight, and I texted my collaborator on this project. Um, and I told her, like, I just had a breakthrough on this. I'm so excited. I can't get to sleep. I will email you in the morning. Um, and that hasn't happened for a long time. And I think it's in part because until these past this past year even, I've known what the story is before going in. And um, I may have talked in the past about starting a new work and was told, uh, and I was really, you know, it was not coming together for me, and I didn't know what the story was. I knew vaguely the premise. Um, and my cousin, who is a has written children's, uh, young adult books, I hadn't talked to her in a while. We got on the phone, and she said, listen, there are a lot of bad writers out there. You can write poorly. Just do it. Just put pen to paper. Just sit at the keyboard. Just start getting stuff down. Um, and that's what I did. And I started finding my way through that. And the characters started telling me where they wanted the story to go. Um, and it's, again, it's it's a new way of working for me, or at least a way I haven't worked in probably 15 years. Um, and it's fun and it's exciting and it feels uncertain. But everything's uncertain right now. And there's a kind of freedom in that uncertainty. Um, you know, these first drafts are not good. My cousin was right. I can write poorly. I'm proving it every day. Um, but I am writing. I am getting the stuff down. And it gets better. And it gets revised. And it gets better. And I get notes. And it gets better. Um, and that's keeping me going. You know, even as the industry is more uncertain than it's been ever, um, even as it's harder and harder to get projects off the ground, the writing feels better than it ever has. And I think I'm a better writer now than I ever have been, in part because of embracing this uncertainty. Anyway, it's working for me. Maybe it'll work for you. Let me know how it's going. Tell me about your writing these days. Find me on Twitter at Ben Blacker. And let's just talk about it. Let's talk about the process. Let's talk about writing. This is why I do the podcast. These are the conversations I still love to have. Um, they are endlessly interesting to me. And there are a lot of great ones coming up. I hope you enjoy them as much as I have. I hope you find inspiration in them as much as I have. Uh, if you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review on iTunes. It is very helpful to me. Here's another thing. Um, I've, 
I'm doing some teaching and I'm doing some consulting. And I really like the consulting. Uh, I think I'm good at notes. I think people who have worked with me will tell you that I am have a good story sense and I'm good at communicating that to you and helping you bring out the thing that you want to bring out in your work. I want to help you write the best script that you can write, whether it's for a fellowship, whether it's for a sample, whatever it is, whether it's just for you. Um, so I'm doing some consulting. I'm doing some classes, but the consulting is really where I think you get the good stuff. Um, you can hire me as a consultant, and I hope you will. Uh, go to scriptanatomy.com, and then there's a, a little menu at the top, and just hit TV consultations, and choose me as your con consultant. Um, I would love it. I really want to help people write the stuff they want to write. It's fun for me. Um, it's satisfying to me. I want to get your ideas out of your head and onto the page. So that's, uh, this is not an ad. This is really just something I'm doing and I love doing it. And I also need to get paid. Uh, script anatomy, scriptanatomy.com and then click on the TV consultations and uh, see what works for you. You know, there's stuff where you can just do an outline. There's stuff where you can throw ideas around. Um, there's stuff where, you know, I've, I've worked with a few students or a few students, a few people who have been terrific. And we've gone from outline to draft to polish. There are a few where we just talk about their outlines. Um, but do you, like do the big ones. Go from, you know, do the script reads or the outline. Do something that's really going to move you forward on your script. Um, once again, scriptanatomy.com uh, and click on consultations and uh, the TV consultations. I hope we can do that. I hope we can meet. That'd be cool. Thanks for listening. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker. And it's starting now. Oh, yeah! Before we get into this week's episode, I'm going to chat with the Ebo sisters who have this terrific new movie, uh, Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul, out right now. Uh, as you are hearing this, the movie is out. So stop listening to this. Go watch the movie. <laughs> Come back, get in your car, put this on. Um, Ebos, good to see you both. <laughs> Thanks good for being here. <laughs> um, let's listen. Here's the here's how I ease you in. Um, tell us about this movie. Tell people why they should see it, and tell them why it's meaningful to you. Yeah, I mean that this movie is uh, what's the pitch? A satirical dark comedy about the first lady of a Southern Baptist megachurch and how she attempts to rebuild her and her pastor husband's congregation after a scandal. Um, uh, I think folks should see the movie because it's not what you expect. Mm -hmm. um, it's, not a, it's not a ride that you, you can't see the loops and the twists on this, on this roller coaster, I'd say. Um, and I think those are some of the most fun things to watch. Yeah. Um, what was the other part of the question? Was there some <laughs> I think I think you did it. Okay. Um, also, I, I forgot to ask because you are both in the same room. Please introduce yourselves oh, as individuals. Okay. And also, has anyone asked you how you started working together yet? Oh, um, how you met? How we met? Oh, how we met? I would love to hear someone ask you that. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, we should introduce ourselves. I don't know how helpful it'll be. Our yeah. voices are pretty similar. <laughs> Um, but right now speaking, this is Adama Ibo. Um, I'm the writer and the director of Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul. And I'm Adana Ibo, a producer for Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul. I, I genuinely am curious about how your creative partnership works. Um, you know, I have two sisters. I don't want to work with them. Uh, so <laughs> tell, tell me how not just it, it, you know, you found your rhythm, but like, how did you even decide that this would be a great, like, this made sense to work together. I think us together just makes sense in general. Yeah, we like don't we, really like to do, we're, we're those type of twins. We don't like to not really be together. Yeah, but I mean, there was, you know, um, a time that, that we were on very separate paths. Like yeah. Adama went to film school, fully pursuing being becoming a filmmaker. And I went to law school, fully pursuing becoming, uh, you know, what I hope to be an entertainment attorney. Um, 
And so we were just like, you know, that'll be, we'll be in the same, you know, area, entertainment, but different. Um, and, you know, that did not last clearly. <laughs> um, but I think it was when um, we both came to this space where like I was questioning whether or not I want to be a lawyer um, long-term and I was still in law school and Adama was um, like in your second year, year of film school. I was right? in film school and learning more about, we, we had to like do everything on our own films. And so I was learning more about what all the roles were and I had to produce, I had to produce two short films my first year, like a two minute film and a six minute film. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I cannot do this again. And so, um, and learning about what producing is, I immediately was like, Adane would, would be perfect mm -hmm. for it though. And so I asked her to produce, she was still in law school, but I asked her to produce my second year film at UCLA. And she said she wanted to. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I didn't know what I, I did a lot of Googling to figure out, but truthfully, yeah, I was gonna it's, a lot of, it's a lot of similar skill sets to being a lawyer. Um, it's like critical thinking, uh, creative problem solving, you know, so um, it you sounded like, gab. yeah, you got to talk to people. <laughs> uh, and it sounded like something I was interested in and I was fine. I, I was trying to come up with ways for me to be more, more on the creative side of things. Mm -hmm rather than on the business and legal side, like I thought I wanted to be. And so I was like, yeah, sure, I, I'll do it. And I fell in love with it. And so that is, that was the inception of our creative partnership. And then just naturally how we create story, develop story, um, that morphed into a writing partnership. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I was going to ask about that too. Like, it, it sounds like it all happened fairly naturally, but when it ca came to the creative part, and we can talk specifically about Hunks and Jesus, like, I know uh, Adama was based on your thesis film. Um, is that right? Did I read that correctly? Yeah. Um, like, how did that start to morph into the feature that we know? And what were the conversations that you two had in that during that process? Well, before it was my thesis film and a, a short film, it, mm -hmm. I wrote a draft of the feature oh, of a feature okay. version first before I did anything else. And so, like, I went to film school in 2014 and. By 2015, I had already written a draft for this feature. It was my wow. the first feature I'd ever written. Um, and it's very different than what has been produced. Um, but it, it, it was the first draft of, of this story and the core of the story. Um, and then I decided to turn that feature into a short, like retroactively, sure. make it a proof of concept. Um, the elevator pitch for this is, is a little wonky. Um, you, you just can't get everything in there. And so I was like having a proof of concept, like I'll show people rather than tell them about it. Yeah. Um, or maybe in addition to telling them about it. Um, and so it was a feature and then it was a short and then a, a feature again. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So when it came time to develop the short into a feature, which I also think like I haven't seen the short, but I imagine tone is such a hard thing to convey both in the script and in a pitch and to do the proof of concept like that had to do so much of the heavy lifting because the tone of this movie is so unusual so fun so specific it's I mean as the best stuff is <laughs> yeah complete I mean that, that it was extremely helpful to have the short when doing anything to get this feature made. That, that's how we got you know Daniel Kluwer and his production company on board that's how we got financing was because we mm. could had something to point to, to to say like we know how to I know it sounds weird but we know how to execute this tone and I think and I think it is also you know as a writer director it, it I think it is one thing to be able to write something well it is another thing to be mm -hmm. able to execute it well and so because it's on the page like, yeah people, I think it's I think it's very much on the page and people yeah. will be like yeah this reads really well how especially I think with like the mix of styles mm -hmm. it's like how would you shoot this and mm -hmm. it's and I would be I was like well I shot a little mini version of it. Would you like to see it? And I think it's like very, it was helpful. extremely helpful in getting smart the feature made. Um, before we are out of town, I out of time, I sort of want to pick up on that and ask each of you, um, and Adama, we'll start with you, like as a director, what is, what do you think was the biggest thing you learned? What is the biggest piece of advice you want to give to someone who is directing for the first time? Oh, there must have uh, been a crash course going into this. It it was a bit, yeah. It was it, it was an experience for sure. Um, I'm glad the first time is over. But um, <laughs> I, I would say trust your gut. Like you, even though there was the, there are going to be a lot of voices 
um, yeah. in the room. There are going to be a lot especially of- Especially your first time. Especially just, when you're a first time yeah. uh, feature filmmaker, there are going to be people who have d- done other features, um, people who have um, seemingly more experience than you, um, but nobody knows this story and this character better than you do. And while it is, I encourage people to be collaborative, there are some things where you're just like, my gut is telling me that this is my vision and trust that and do that. Uh, there were there were a couple instances where, you know, I thought I might fold, but I, I held strong and I'm and I'm the proud movie's, of, the movie's better for it. I think the movie's better for it and I'm proud. I I, I love it better. I, I, there's a movie at Sundance. There was a movie at Sundance the same this year, the year that um, Honk got into Sundance, that had the exact like the shot, the exact same shot ending that I was being encouraged to make. Oh wow! Um, and I was just like, I don't think I want to do it, and I almost folded, and then I did it, and then I watched that movie at Sundance. I was like, thank God, it would have been the exact same ending of the yeah. movie, like oh, so not only necessarily, but just the actual shot. I was like, that would have killed me. I'm so glad that I didn't do it. I trusted my gut. <laughs> Yeah, that's great to hear too. Like that that sounds like good advice for like so many of the things we do. Um, and Adana, the same question, like what do you wish you had known about producing a feature going in uh, that you had to learn uh, on the spot? Oh, um, I, I wish I had known how long it goes <laughs> you know, yeah i you with it you are with it for a while this thing is still going we st- i'm still getting emails about contracts and stuff i'm like where the movie is coming out in two weeks right. about? um i i wish i wish i if i had known that then i would have been I, i'm the type of i'm very i'm a type a type of person so i'm like let me just do this myself because I, mm-hmm. i'm not doing it um i wish i had um I had a lot of learning to do, but I wish I would have stepped forward more in a couple of circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, because even even though I felt like I could have done better, I I felt like I I because I was so I'm so young in my career that I should just kind of, kind of sit back yeah. and uh, take the reins. Um, so I would encourage people to just just go full force, be as active as possible. Um, as much as possible. Obviously, let people counsel you because your first time is a learning experience. You will make mistakes. Um, but, you know, just go full force. Be a full-on producer as much as possible. But, yeah, that's great advice. And it sounds like from both of you, like the, the biggest lesson is like, yes, be open to collaboration, get yeah. information, get those voices, but trust your instincts on this. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, the movie is great. Uh, uh, Hong for Jesus, Save Your Soul is out right now. Folks can go see it. Um, and should like I really uh-huh. loved watching this. Congrats Thank to both of you. Please you. come back anytime. We'll sit. We'll have a long conversation oh, yeah. about Absolutely. your process and movies and all this good stuff. Congrats. We'd love, love to. Yeah. I'm going to get us started, and uh, what I'm going to do is have you introduce yourselves on the microphone and have you tell us a couple places where our listeners may have seen your name on their television screen. Um, and we'll go around, uh, starting with you, Will. Um, my name is Will Graham. Uh, I uh, created, I started out, cre- I created what's called the Onion News Network, which was like the video part of the Onion. Um, and we did a show at IFC. And then from that, um, worked on Mozart in the Jungle. Um, and now I'm doing A League of Their Own, which just came out. Um, I co-created it and I uh, ran it with Abby Jacobson and then Daisy Jones and the Six, which comes out in about six months. Awesome. Thanks. Melissa. Hi, um, I am Melissa London Hilfers, and I am the creator and executive producer of Monarch, um, which is on your TV as of this past Sunday. So when we air couple Sundays ago. Um, so you haven't seen my name on your TV for a long time, but now you can, now you've seen it three times because I, you know, did a bunch of jobs on the same show. Sure. And that's what people are looking for is I want to see that repetition of names yes. that gets me invested in the people behind the scenes. Same name. It doesn't change. Exactly. Um, Connor. Hi, um, you might know my name from if you're one of the devoted fans that watched the reboot of Thundercats Roar, um, Fairfax on Amazon, 
uh, season one and seasons three and four of Harley Quinn, the animated series. Thank you all for being here. Um, I want to start us off with just some um, questions about the stuff you are doing these days. And um, then we'll sort of go back and see where the conversation takes us. Um, but Will, let's start with you and let's talk about A League of Their Own. And um, I think it's always interesting to me, the conversation around bringing this beloved material to the screen, like doing a new iteration of it. Um, and I think what you all have, you and Abby have done and your writers is, you know, give it a new reason to exist in many ways. Um, so I'm curious to hear about that conversation and like, what did the pitch look like? How did you even get involved in the first place? Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's all of the things that you said. Uh, it's like, it's, it's wonderful and daunting to work with a piece of material um, that um, people bring in a set of expectations on, but then they also do bring in a set of um, expectations on it. I grew up loving the movie. I just had a really strong personal connection to it. I'm queer. My dad, like very nicely, I think in a well-intentioned way, made me play a lot of Little League Baseball. And I just kind of like wept through the whole <laughs> um, experience because I didn't feel like I should be there. And I think I related to that same kind of, um, you know, outsider subtext, but really queer subtext in the movie that a lot of people did. But it, it was really subtext. You know, when you go back and watch it, you're like, even Rosie O'Donnell's character is like, I have a boyfriend who's mean to me. Um, and, and so then a few years ago when I was making Mozart in the Jungle, I started watching the movie again and I started just, I'm, I love history and I love documents and letters and things that are old. So I started just kind of looking into um, the stories underneath it. Uh, and, um, you know, there's just, the first thing that became clear was that there was so much to this story that hadn't been told. And mm -hmm. that there was this enormous queer story that I really felt like people hadn't seen. Um, and, and so we really, the urge to do it didn't come from the movie because the movie is the movie. It's wonderful. And it's always going to be there and we're not, um, taking it away from, uh, uh, anyone It's not deleted from streaming services. <laughs> right. oh, there's a, a sense of like, well, now maybe there's a chance to use that like wonderful tone that Penny Marshall and the cast created and really look at this, um, this new set of stories. And so I went into Sony and uh, was like, this is what I would want to do with it. And I kind of expected that they would be like, ha, like, get out of here. Um, <laughs> like we're already turning it into something else or, you know, just, and instead they said yes, which at that point I kind of like um, got very scared. And that was when I went into <laughs> Abby and was like, would you want to do this with me? Cause it is, um, daunting uh just what the movie means to people and then yeah. the idea of um not just trying to do that again but trying to bring people something a little different can i just say like people are always asking how do you sell a tv show i would have bought that just based <laughs> on those five five minutes or whatever that you just said i mean hearing the emotional connection is what makes people care and want to watch so well yeah. well pitched or what do they say <laughs> well told <laughs> <laughs> That's what they say when they don't buy it. So exactly. The yeah, they're like, that was very well told. Uh, it was the biggest insult. Get the fuck out of my office. It was terribly told. I buy it. Yeah. Um, well, no, it's like an emotional connection in an emotional yeah. world. You know, we've now become friends with a lot of the players and spend a lot of our time hanging out with 95-year-old baseball <laughs> playing lesbians. And um, it's really been incredible to get to do it but uh, an important part of the process I think for us sort of emotionally was like leaning into the movie and then also letting it go at some point mm -hmm. and just being like well this is going to be its own thing and and people will like that or not and um you know like kind of letting it enter your body but not letting it take over your brain too much if that makes sense yeah yeah I mean I'm kind of curious to hear about those conversations with the studio and the network, you know, like did did they have an expectation that was different to what you all were interested in? Um, I don't think that they had. So I think everyone from the moment that they sort of heard, um, even just looked at the research 
that we did because the first thing we did was put together like a couple thousand pages of research on these stories and and queer culture at the time and and just sort of said like this is the opportunity everyone was really excited about doing that and both sony and amazon i think like immediately understood what we were trying to do and i think crucially because a lot of times we tend to describe the relationship between us and studios and networks in an adversarial um, way. Like they were so supportive, but everyone's a little scared about how you're gonna do it, sure. right? And it becomes this thing about like, can we keep one step in the familiar? Can we make it one right. step safer? Can we do this thing that I think for everyone comes out of fear because everyone looks at the same testing and everyone wonders whether people will go along for the ride. So I would say more as a team, there were a lot of conversations about sort of how we needed to chart that course. For me, and I think for Abby, the North Star was always, we're telling these authentic stories um, yeah. and they're real. And we wanna tell them in a way that matters to people now and isn't just a museum. And, and that was kind of, and then we wanna, you know, we love the movie and we wanted to communicate that, I guess in some ways. But, yeah. but I do think to what Melissa was saying, like one of the big things, cause I'm often drawn to things like classical music or rock music, or like, I, I like writing about teams and I like writing about people that care about something more than themselves. And that a lot of times leads me to write about things that I don't necessarily know the most about. Um, what really helped with this was having such a strong emotional connection hmm. to the stories and being a queer person and um, I don't know, being able to see yourself in yeah. them. That was a good, cause you do get a million rounds of notes and you're kind of surfing those just being like, we're going over there. Uh, <laughs> you know, that was a really good North Star. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and it actually leads me to, um, Melissa, I wanted to ask you about Monarch. Like this is this is one of the few shows out there that is not based on anything. How How did you sell this? Like, I imagine there had to be some personal connection that was part of the pitch. For sure, there's a personal connection. There's also sort of a, um, a bit of a high concept, too. So I, um, I found out that Fox was looking to do something in the country music space. And I grew up in a family, a very musical family, although you would never want to hear me sing, but I do love to do it. I mean, I do it with gusto. I mean, if you ask me twice, no, I'm kidding, I won't. Um, nobody, trust me, nobody wants to hear that. But, um, but my household was always filled with music and we had musicals and my dad played guitar and we had John Denver and, and um, I, you know, um, folk music, country music was sort of a, a part of the fabric of my family. And when I think about family, I think about music. So when I found out they wanted to do that, I got excited and I, this is gonna sound like a total non sequitur, I'm really obsessed with dynasties. So I always wanted to do something about the Romanov dynasty. I think they're really interesting. And, um, you know, they had this, obviously like a disconnect with the people. And so I thought, you know, what if there were a country, country music is all about authenticity. They, uh, it was once that it was, it's three chords and the truth. So I went to, what if there was this um, country music family whose whole dynasty was based on lies. And the pitch was, what if the Romanoff dynasty were reimagined as a family of country stars in Austin, Texas. Cool. But the emotional core that really was my connection and the, I, am weird in that I sort of sometimes have a character in my head that I want to write and I don't know what the project is for her. Mm -hmm. It's usually a her. It might've always been a her actually, um, but so far. Um, but this character is, you know, is a woman who reaches a certain age, she's over 40 and she has every expectation on her and she's in this powerful family. And when she finally gets her chance, is it too late? And you can imagine, <laughs> meeting me, why I would be feeling these things. And, <laughs> and, and put to piece it together. This is my first thing to actually make it to air. And I've been working a long time. Yeah. So, I mean, this is stuff that's like deep in my soul of like, I have been working so hard. Am I, is there anything I can do? Am I ever going to make it? And in this business that values youth has the ship sailed. So, um, you know, thematically, that's a big part of the show. I mean, I think honestly, it was the Romanovs in Texas that sold it. But, um, <laughs> but once we got going, sure, um, that's what sold the sold the, the pilot. But yeah, then to yeah. get the series, we needed real uh, some real feelings. But it By is way, like I like, would totally yeah. buy that pitch. Like, meaning that's also just a wonderful. You're yeah. like, oh yeah, I automatically want to see that in many different ways. 
And and it's like Will was saying, like having this North Star to guide you, like you you knew this character, you knew who she is. Uh, and I imagine that like story falls out of that. It makes the show easy to talk about, the journey easy to talk about um, with your writers and all that. Exactly. And you know where you want it, you know where you want yeah. it to go, whether or not she's able to accomplish the things she wants to. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really clarifying. Um, all right, we'll pick up there um, in a minute. But um, Connor, you know, we, we Will touched on this idea of seeing yourself uh, and building this world where you can see yourself on screen. And I wanted to talk about, like, you are, as of yet, not a show creator. So you're working on other people's shows. Um, how do you make sure that you are in there? Do you, do you feel that you, the things that you represent, the person that you are, the things that you care about uh, are in these shows? Um, yeah, I feel like even though it's not my show per se, and there's not like a character that's specifically based on me in there, right. uh, I still think like the more I'll punch something up, the more inevitable inevitable it'll be that my point of view and my voice is going to come through and uh, it's even more apparent if you know me very well because apparently my episode of harley quinn just aired and my friend who watched it was like i could tell which jokes were yours <laughs> i love that what, what is what is a connor shin joke well i think what's funny is i'm the worst person to ask that of that <laughs> but um a friend of mine was like this one joke was that yours and i was like yeah and they're like <laughs> you would fixate on a weird thing like that i think it's um uh oh, man it's i tend to fixate on the most odd things and um just uh i i like to use a colorful turn of phrase so so if someone words something and says it a little weirdly they're like connor that's her stank all over it <laughs> um but yeah, I used to worry about that because like, I mean, God knows I've written so many pilots and I've right. never sold anything. But and now when I got staffed, I'm like, I guess I'll work on someone else's dream. But then like when you're writing after weeks and weeks, you're you're going to come through whether you want to or not. Exactly. So I um, that fear kind of went away. What, and, um, yeah. what was the material that was read for your staffing? Um, a couple of things. It's interesting is there was two pilots that my reps wanted to folk to sell me on. And I think it's because they were so different. Mm -hmm. One was called Asian Bakery and one was called Sadness Town. <laughs> and um, one was live action. One was animated. And uh, Asian Bakery was about a woman who lived in Koreatown owned a bakery and lived above it. And it was a comedy about her. Um, she has borderline personality and has trouble with black and white thinking and is learning how to see things with a middle ground. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a, it's, it was a comedy, trust me. And um, another, and it was very cheery. It was, I was told it was very much in the vein of Kimmy Schmidt. Mm -hmm. And, but I also wanted a little, uh, a show that always, 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 you know, something resonates with you when you think about it, when you're trying to come up with something. Uh, for me, it was that animated show Shin Chan. Mm -hmm. I think it was some, there was a level of joy and whimsy behind it that always, I'm like, I want this emotion to come through. Hmm. So um, yeah, I, I wanted like little ounces of those feelings coming through. And for Sadness Town, um, there was, this is, it was inspired by uh, uh, there's a there's an issue in a lot of a well developed not well developed prominent Asian countries with uh, mental illness being ignored and suicides out of control and it's so bad that instead of tackling it they just sort of been like this is where people go to kill themselves Ooh. and uh, yeah. I thought it was be because there's like uh, it's so bad that there's a uh, one, there's a suicide forest in Japan. There's a story about, uh, there's a cliff, a, a retired police officer. This is a true story. Police officer who lives in a cottage next to it. And if he sees someone that looks like they're ready to jump, he'll approach you with a cup of tea and try to walk you down. Hmm. And he moved there specifically for that purpose. Wow. 
and then there's a bridge in Korea where South Korea, where um, if you walk on it, the tiles light up with messages that say, "Have you eaten today? When have you slept? Interesting. Have you called your family?" And because the issue of jumpers is so intense, and I was like, "What if? What if we just created a place where people were allowed to be sad?" <laughs> and you know, and and this was also when Banksy came up with Dismal Land. <laughs> So I and I love the idea of creating a world. So um, I thought it'd be fun to have like an amusement park dedicated to being sad and people <laughs> just getting get your mourn on, stay there for a couple of months, and then leave back into society refreshed. And but the thing is, uh, my story is someone coming there being told they have to be the mayor of Sadness Town. That's great. That's great. I mean, I think like. Melissa and Will, you have both now staffed rooms. I think in hearing about Connor's sample scripts, like you can even hear the stuff that was responded to by the showrunners, you know? Um, when you two were staffing, what were you, was there particular things you, you were reading? Uh, was there a particular kind of voice you were looking for? Uh, either of you who wants to jump in first? I'll go. I, um, I was looking for... Um, crazy soapy twists people because the ante was high from Fox that we wanted it to be operatic level crazy, which hmm. I can deliver crazy that I, that's one thing I know I can deliver. Um, but I wanted to make sure that the level of crazy in the room was high um, and there was no judgment from anyone. Um, you know, a clear voice, um, humor. Uh, we, I wanted to read one hour dramas, but I wanted there to be humor infused in them because the show has that. And it's something that, um, I, this is terrible. I think you either have it or you don't. It's very hard to figure out how to write funny if it doesn't come to you. Um, and yeah, I think people that would bring something new and specific to the, to the room that I could see, um, I could see them resonating, you know, either in one of the characters or in mm -hmm. sort of the world. Sure. Um, and I, you know, I also was always looking for people who had experience with country music. It's not that easy to find writers um, who <laughs> have any interest, first of all, in country music. They were interested in writing it, but you know, actually have any knowledge at all. And that's okay. It wasn't a requirement. Like sure. you don't have to be a doctor to work on a medical show, um, but you had to care and you had to have an appreciation for the art form and also for the audience. Um, so yeah, those things. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, for specific funny. <laughs> that's your people. Will, specifically on A League of Their Own, was there stuff you were reading or looking to read and stuff you were looking for? Yeah, I mean, I think like any, like staffing is a creative process and it's also sort of a process of putting together a family. Yeah. Um, and you go in with different expectations and needs every time. And then you kind of usually wind up with something a little different than what you thought you needed, but hopefully it's what you really need. I think with League in particular, we knew from the start because the range of stories in terms of race, in terms of queerness, the the experiences are so big that this just was going to function differently than a normal room. And the show was really written by a team in the sense of like everyone brought their own personal stuff to it. And we really put the time in to really talk until we mm -hmm. got to answers that um, felt good to everyone. Uh, we had a it was the most incredible writer's room that uh, I've ever been in. Um, I mean, I think the first thing I'm always looking for is people that I really want to spend time with and that are going to operate from a place of kindness and joy, even when the work is hard and are going to bring um, fun uh, mm -hmm. and, and a good vibe to the room. And then beyond that, in reading scripts, I think you're always looking for um, voice and not just people who can do a particular type of genre well or that kind of thing, but like what corner of this show could this person bring out that I won't be able to? But, you know, Anthony Sodofia, who's a um, supervising producer on the show, is a playwright, uh, had done a lot of work on genealogy. So she really focused on like the families and fleshing out the stories of the families, even the ones you don't really see to figure out like, who these people really were. Um, Michelle Badillo, you know, we also like Melissa said, have a real balance of comedy and emotion. Um, so Michelle Badillo is someone who came 
uh, more from a comedic background, um, uh, but really turned out to be able to write both. I mean, Desta Ref wound up basically running the show with me and Abby and she, we had a lot of playwrights. She was someone who had come out of a lot of different TV rooms. And so she really brought a lot of like structure, you know, someone would say something sort of brilliant and very vague and everyone would like sit there with a wine tasting kind of feeling for a minute. Um, <laughs> And we also had, you know, Abby, obviously, who co-created the show with me, but is also in it. And also Bemisola Ikumelo, who plays Clance in the show, uh, was also in our, um, okay. our writer's room. And Weinstein was the staff writer, but so, brought such a deep understanding of um, the stories of uh, that involved gender expression and also just was uh, incredibly funny. And Morgan Gould, who uh, is a playwright who really wanted to talk about kind of body diversity. Um, which is something that surfaces in the show in a couple mm -hmm. of interesting ways. Well, Will, did you staff the playwrights off of plays as samples? Because I, I am a simpleton, so this is probably me, but we got submitted plays and I tried to read them. And I would often, <laughs> if I liked the play, I would often ask them to please send me a one hour drama sample because I wasn't able to be sure that it would translate. I think you can be a great writer. And I mean, also it's broadcast television, so they're very specific structures. But did you hire them off of the... Off of plays? Two of them I hired off of plays. Uh, and and I think it's also a little different. I'm guessing I've never done what you're doing, Melissa, in terms of like a broadcast room. And I don't know how many episodes you guys uh, you guys had. Only 11. It wasn't, this is a... Yeah, we had eight. So it was like, I kind of thought about like who I really wanted to be able, to, just to know that they could really take on a script. And then also... Um, some people that I was just like, I just want your brain mm -hmm. there and maybe it'll work out so that you can um, carry a script. Uh, but if that's also something you're still working towards, which is fine. Like, I, I guess I, I also, I didn't want, um, like experience is so great. And then experience also trains you to think in certain ways. Um, so that's so true. I get the balance of both, but it's also because, you know, we, we, we have, a, I think, a slightly more relaxed schedule uh, than you're probably under. Let's talk about uh, breaking in. Let's, let's go back to the beginning. And um, I'm curious to hear about where you all came from, how you wound up where you are. Um, and Connor, let's start with you. Am I right that you started uh, as an actor and comedian? Uh, yeah. Um, so how did, I, how did writing for television become part of it? Well, what's funny is um, I, I was trying to get into writing first and I didn't know anything about it. Um, I, I graduated college with a degree in art and I was like, but then three different people told me that I should try comedy. And I have this rule of threes. If three unrelated people tell me something, there has to be something there. And so I pursued comedy and I, I literally Googled how to get into comedy. And it said, <laughs> go into stand up. And then, so I tried stand up and then I was like, okay, how else can I get into comedy? And I noticed a lot of my favorite actors that said, oh, they do sketch or they do improv. So I started taking improv classes at UCB, Groundlings. And then I started doing a lot of sketch and then, um, which was very helpful because um, I love, I find it so helpful to approach a script from an actor's point of view because mm -hmm. no, there's no one's going to get a shitty line. There's no going to yeah. be. Because like, I'm so used to asking a friend, being like, would you mind doing this line in my stupid thing? And so if you're already asking someone a favor, you want to make it worth their time. So everyone... That is, that's a great yeah. way of putting that. And I think it's something we don't talk about enough, which is like mm -hmm. making making the work worthwhile for the people you are working with. Yeah. And I'm not... And not even if it's not a joke, I'm like, can we at least make this one person like, make sense yeah. or have like, a personality have something going on yeah so i'm used to a lot of actor friends and uh, like i'm like if they're if i'm going to give someone like a bit part i'm like i want them to be excited about this part and i, I find that's very helpful when writing multiple characters because that way there's never anyone that's like exposition man and um so sketched uh i started auditioning 
But what's good about uh, performing is it got people to see my writing without mm -hmm. reading it. Yeah. And you're, you're writing so much. I have OCD, which is kind of why I couldn't really get into stand-up because I hate repeating material. <laughs> Which is dumb, I know. It's like, for me, I'm like, I already did these jokes twice. But, uh, it's insane, I know. But then yeah, it got me writing a lot. So I got used to writing a lot. And those turned into pilots. Um, oh, and people are like, oh, you're, I saw you on stage funny. Can you do on paper funny? And um, that slowly uh, devolved into, like, let me see a sample. And then I got on a sketch team at UCB for about four years, a mod team. You know what that is? Um, I do not know a, what that is. Oh, that's what they call their sketch teams. Their okay. improv teams are called Herald teams, and their sketch teams are called Mod teams. Okay. And I was on one of those for four years, and then afterwards, uh, uh, I was able to get staffed. Because mm -hmm. you were uh, just you were generating all this material and turning some of it into samples. Yeah, and I was booking a few jobs, mainly as a performer, but I still like. I had a monkey on my back that was like, I, I, you, you're going to write still, right? And um, it's a work I, monkey. Well, we it's, all have that monkey, the writing monkey. Well, <laughs> well you get ideas for stories. Yeah. And it's like, even because people would ask me, they're like, oh, you, you just booked a role on blah, blah, blah. So you're going to give up writing. And I'm like, why would I do that, though? Mm -hmm. It's not, I'm not doing because I hate it. I'm just, I do like creating characters and, um, so I just actually have broken off, not broken off. Um, I'm expanding into horror. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a horror novel this year because um, COVID wouldn't stop. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was like, you have some time. You have no excuse. Just do it. Yeah. So, so it, yeah. The writing was always part of it for you. Like the, 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 it seems like these things all kind of went hand in hand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It makes sense. Yeah. Um, and the opportunities kind of came from being out there with the material. Yeah, if you can handle performing, like with people who are asking for, like, how do I get people to look at my writing? And mm -hmm. I'm like, do you, unless you hate, hate, hate being on stage, I'm like, put on a show. Because even lit agents hate reading. So <laughs> it's the craziest thing. Like one of my former bosses was saying like, um, we were talking about something, and he's like, "Oh yeah, I didn't read your sample." And I'm like, "Then what?" And he's like, "You were just put in the room." And I was like, "What the hot? How are you doing? This is so insane." <laughs> yeah, so, that, that sounds yeah. about right. Um, Will, how did you get your start here? What What were you doing before the uh, Onion News Network stuff? Uh, I was living in Japan and working with a theater company there right when I graduated from college. I lived in a little island in the south of Japan called Tanigashi um, for a couple of years. Uh, and I had an amazing time there and dated this guy and almost wound up staying. But while I was there, kind of between other things, I started making, I'd always done theater and like Connor was saying, done comedy. Um, and I started making short films. And then uh, somebody from The Onion saw one of them and they were thinking about starting a web video department. And uh, so um, they met with me and made the huge mistake of hiring me instead of somebody who knew what they were doing. Um, and so it started with me and kind of four interns sitting around a ping pong table when I was <laughs> five and um, then gradually grew up into a production company that did um, television and, um, and uh, did the web series, but it, it was amazing for me both because it really teaches you about collaboration, um, which is something sure. that I think we don't always talk about enough. I mean, to what Melissa was saying before, like a lot of really shows, but also everyone's quality of life and quality of mental health depends on people's ability to have a shared vision, which is really difficult um, for a lot of people. So how you create a culture that allows people to, to personally participate um, in the same vision from different perspectives, I think is like, that was something that I, I got a lot of at The Onion and also just the thing of like, I'm going to write 1 million jokes and <laughs> one of them will be good and that's okay. Yeah. What an incredible learning experience that must have yeah, been. Yeah, it was also just, I think almost all of us have that moment in your life where you just get to 
go through the, or in your creative life where you, you're like the time where you get to go through the cycle of just making something start to end a bunch of times. And that was that for me, because we were putting out, you know, four or five web videos a week and doing these long shoots for them. Um, and then from that, I, you know, I started working uh, on our show at IFC and that was the first show that I ran and I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> and uh, you should never run the first show that you work on, but I think it, it was so small that yeah. everyone was like, well, let's see what happens. Uh, <laughs> And so really I, I learned how to show run from the ground up, just sort of making uh, a lot of um, mistakes. What then, were, yeah. it's, it's what an amazing experience though. Like what were the, on that IFC show, what were the things you realized? Like, this is something, this is part of the job that I have absolutely no idea how to do. How do I spend the rest of my life not doing it? Yeah. I mean, um, first of all, I loved it so much. And, and I say that it was hard. It was also amazing and worthwhile and everything. Yeah. Um, something I really took from that experience and just from talking to people as I was starting out and trying to figure out what I was doing was like building a show is like building a machine, right? And the machine is either going to get you where you want to go, or it's going to like run you over and tear you into a million tiny pieces and destroy your soul. So like, you have to build it right with the goal of making the hard part actually making the show good. Um, mm -hmm. But there's a lot of machine that goes in underneath that, right? Just into process and how you're working and, um, and how people kind of know where you're going and how you build trust with your partners, um, uh, both in the room and in production and on the studio side uh and and everything so i learned a lot of that i think i also learned um how to think about audience in a way that wasn't ultimately demeaning to audience like i think um i i probably fluctuated back and forth when we were first starting between making jokes that felt like they were and i think the same way about stories now for like a hundred percent of people and they were too bland or for they they were for like 10 percent of people and they were sort of too um, niche or specific, yeah. or they just didn't matter enough. So like how to really find the things that like an actual audience will care about without trying to, um, and then, then how to balance that because we tell stories for an audience, like through yourself as a medium, like how to balance that with your own, um, sort of sense of what you personally care about, mm -hmm. uh, was a big thing I learned from doing that. That's really interesting. Um, is that something you're able to now, you know, having done this for so many years, able to convey to a writer's room? Like, this is this is where we're trying to fit our voice. Uh, you mean in terms of describing what the show is? In the sort and of describing like who the audience is or, or the way we're writing a show towards yeah. an audience. So one thing that I do in my own work that I've also started to do with rooms is like, have everyone bring in pictures of two people that they know that they think are in the audience for the show. <laughs> You're a personal and you have like physical, mental representations of them. Because I think if you it's if you think about it in more abstract terms than that, you start to make things stupider or or the audience sort of starts to become a little bit of this albatross. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you think about it, like not just as the people I'm writing for, but also the people that you're writing for, or Connor's writing for, I think that's really helpful. I think League was also a story where everyone was writing very much from their own truth. Um, and so a, a lot of it was sort of bouncing that off of the historical information <laughs> and then bouncing yeah. the historical information off of that, if, if that um, makes sense. So I think the real core thing that we had from the start with the writer's room was saying, and we actually had two separate writer's rooms, which was uh, an unusual experience, wow. um, was saying like, this is a show that is joyful, just like the movie is. And we want to tell the story through a lens of joy, but we don't want to look away or overlook the hard things. So that was a question that we just mm -hmm. all had to answer as a group. Yeah. And you sort of calibrate what that means for story and character and jokes and everything as you go, yeah. I imagine. And, and look, it, it worked. Well, saying that I'll, I'll never know. Uh, <laughs> I'm telling you. 
Melissa, where did you come from? When, how did you get started? Uh, what was the first thing, the first bit of writing you got paid for? Uh, first of all, I'm stealing the photos of the That's a great idea. That is such a good idea. It's also like fun in the room to talk about. That's genius. Yeah. I'm doing it and I'll call it the will. Um, today we're doing the will. Great. Sounds like a dance. You can also dance while bringing in the photos. Yeah. Just, um, I just photos. Um, am from Baltimore and I was a lawyer um, until I had my third child. And when I was on maternity leave with her, I had an idea for a movie, which I wrote. And I loved it. I mean, I just loved every minute. Like I was literally that person sitting at the keyboard, like with a grin on her face from beginning to end. Um, and after I wrote it, I read Sid Field and was like, oh, that's not that far off. Like, I guess that's kind of how you're supposed to do it. Um, but I was so bitten by the bug that I sent, or the, the monkey, um, I sent it to a friend of mine who had been an assistant at one of the big agencies and said like, she, she's like a very good friend. She would have said, if this right. is more of a hobby or something <laughs> you should do, give up your career and do. And she said, you should do it. And I'm sending it to my former boss, um, who at the time wasn't interested in reading some random woman, you know, mo mother of three script, but is now my agent 12 years later. Uh, took a little while. I really, I'm very tenacious. Um, I didn't give up, but no, she sent it to someone else who did read it and became my manager. And now um, hmm. he's on the team as well. What was the first thing I sold? It was that, but, but not immediately. Mm -hmm. um, what happened was it went to the guy who, Alan Gasmer, who would eventually become my manager. And he said, it's, he's, he's an inimitable, um, way of talking but he said something like I read it and I said to myself this kid's got it but this isn't the one do another and then like sure. hung up that's how I remember <laughs> like and chomped on a cigar no like right of course never. but um so I did another and I sent it to him and he was like yeah this it's better I see what you're doing but you know don't try to do what you think people want do you hmm. so the third script I wrote um was called mommy rehab and um, is about an exhausted mother of three who fakes her way into rehab to get a break from her family. <laughs> and it is now, I wanna say 14 years later, um, going forward. Like it has uh, <laughs> financing and a, and a great director and it's been rewritten a thousand times. Sure. But that's not the first thing I sold. The first thing I sold was after all of those, the first thing I wrote sold. Mm -hmm. So. Um, you never know. It's wild. But of with course. much, much rewriting. It wasn't like I came up with yeah, this yeah, thing. Yeah. It's like sprung from, you know, the thigh of, of course. Zeus and was perfect. Um, so thigh or head? So Both, I think. Yeah, so yeah. Where did the thing spring out of Zeus? You know what I mean? I want to say the head. I think it was his head. I don't know why I thought it was a thigh. Okay, sorry. That's weird. Um, we're leaving that in. In fact, we're taking it out. We're putting it at the beginning. And then we're going to start the Amazing. Thing. And don't say that uh, I said my show was funny or that I'm funny in any way. Oh, no. Not intentionally not. funny. Oh, no. They know. They've seen it. Um, yeah, they got, they got. <laughs> what I'm curious to hear about, like, so it, that was all 14 years ago. Um, yeah. Tell me about the interim. How do you stay afloat? How do you keep working? How do you not give up? Oh my God, that's a great question. So yeah, I know. For, it, yeah, that's why I asked it. The um the start was 14 years ago, and I don't think I sold anything for at least two years. Um, and it was hard because I had given up a big career to do it, and I loved it so much, and I just knew. It was what I was meant to be doing. And there is a point where you go, just because it's the thing that I feel I was meant to be doing doesn't mean that I can ever make a living at it. Yeah. Um, and that's very hard. I had like little nuggets of good things that would happen, like that mommy rehab script, um, advance in the nickel one year. Mm -hmm. Like little, I mean, little nuggets. And yeah. like it was like, this is the sign I needed. You know, like you have to be willing to embrace little signs, whether they're meaningful or not, but they have to give you hope. Um, well, but also any of that feels like maybe not momentum, but feels like a move forward, right? Yes. And you're not staying in one place and you're not moving back. And a little move forward can do wonders for you. And they all build upon each other. Um, yeah. That first thing I sold was because I had 
gotten a manager, which was like stage three, you know, everything kind of goes from the next. And then I had sold something. So then I could have meetings and then eventually get an agent. And um, so, yeah, it, but there were many, many very difficult years um, of, you know, lying in bed at night thinking I made a horrible mistake and, but I can't stop myself. I mean, you know, it wasn't an option. Um, And thank goodness I had very supportive, uh, very supportive husband and friends um, who were like, keep going. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but even after, so the, like the sort of big break moment I had was I sold a feature spec. Um, and that felt like a huge moment, but I feel like at, and that, then I developed it for a while and that died, which is what happens sometimes. Um, a fancy, fancy director got involved and then it died. <laughs> Thanks fancy, fancy British guy. Um, but after that, there was a long period. But I mean, that sustained me for a while because I was sure. like, wow, I got paid for a big thing. Like now I know I can do this. I just have to do it right. Yeah. Um, I I have, you know, I did um, that WGA show owner training program mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. And I it's a wonderful program, I have to say. Um, you learn a lot, but also there's this incredible peer group. So mm-hmm. I got to know all of these amazing writers who are in the same business and understand the job. Yeah. and it's it's kind of a universal that nobody ever feels like they have job security. And these are like the top, you know, up and coming showrunners, yeah. um, which is terribly depressing, but also like misery loves company. It's very, um, you know, makes you feel a little bit better. Yeah. yeah, it's always great and terrible. And you never feel like things go exactly the way that you thought that they were gonna go. And you're always like, am I gonna, I mean, I just turned 40. I'm like still like welcome. What am I even do doing? Uh, like, does any of this um, make sense? I think that's like it's almost like a thing you have to make friends with after <laughs> a while because you're just like, oh, that voice. You're gonna stick around. When I sold my first thing, I went to dinner with my mom, and she said, "I'm just so glad this happened before you turned 40." <laughs> oh my god. She's awesome. I mean, she's honestly awesome. I love her and she will listen to this. Hi, mom. But um, but yeah, that's, you know, it's a thing. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, well, we'll pick that up next time we get together. Um, meantime, Melissa's mom, please leave a review on iTunes. Um, <laughs> let's end as we always do by asking what you are watching on television these days. What's getting you excited or inspired? Uh, what are you talking about with your friends, your loved ones, your the room that you're in? Um, Connor, let's start with you. Um, it's hard to find something I'm not watching right now because I think everyone started watching a lot more content due to lockdown, but (laughs) that habit kind of continued. Also being a TV writer, like there's a, there was a couple of shows like right now I'm watching house of dragon and the rings of power, not just because I was fans of the prior franchises, but because I was like, if I don't, people are going to spoil it for me. So sure. I have to keep up with it. <laughs> and I love American Dad. Um, it's it's not like Family Guy at all, if you're wondering. I think that show gets has wandered away from Family Guy and it kind of became its own thing. And I watch a lot of reality TV now, but not all of I not not like The Bachelor or whatever. I don't like um anything where people are supposed to fall in love because that always irks me. I love shows where people at some point, like the cops get called. Like there's a certain level of grittiness. All um, right. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. And, and any sort of true crime. Uh, what, what aren't you watching? I'm not watching the bachelorette. All right. There I'm you go. Not- there we go. That's I want. I want to see the complete list of the shows you are not watching. Um, <laughs> I think that would be very interesting. Also, weirdly, I'm watching a lot of YouTube videos because I don't watch YouTubers, but there's a whole world of people that just react to other YouTubers. Yes, <laughs> and that's where the real meat is. It's very. Isn't there a world of people watching YouTube? Like you can watch people watching. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, who watches the watchers? Well, but the, here's the thing. Now we know the, watch, the middle, the the second black <laughs> mirror world of that is what's fascinating because you get, um, you, they say what everyone's feeling. Be like, you lied about this already. And 
it's like watching it with a really catty friend. <laughs> this, uh, you know what? I've been doing this for over 10 years. I have never gotten that answer to what are you watching? So thank you, <laughs> Connor. Uh, Will, what are you watching these days? Um, let's see. I just finished um, like 200 days of shooting between League of Their Own and Daisy Jones. So I'm having like the fun experience of like getting to go back in time, <laughs> like going back in time and, and watching stuff. My husband and I are watching For All Mankind, um, which we're obsessed with. Uh, and it's so cool to watch a show that like just on a structural level is doing something really different that I've never seen people do before and jumping like years in between episodes and it's also really emotional and kind of like comforting but also uncomfortable at the same time and then we're also I mean we're always watching Drag Race so uh we're uh just finishing Drag Race down (laughs) these are good answers um Melissa what are you watching these days so I like many people I'm obsessed with House of the Dragon but to give you some new ideas um, I just binged, I think I can only watch the first three episodes of this show on Hulu called Tell Me Lies about a toxic relationship. It's delicious. <laughs> I really like it. And the other one I want to recommend is Devil in Ohio on Netflix, yeah. which is um, a thriller with a satanic twist. Okay. Um, and it's it's really fun. But like maybe not right before bedtime. I did watch it right before bedtime. And then I had like, you know, scary satanic thoughts. <laughs> More than usual. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. 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 Um, thank you all so much for being here. Uh, please come back and chat anytime. Uh, and folks, make sure you check out all of their shows. They are worth your time. Thanks, everyone. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.